Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. How many times have you had someone offer their assistance, their advice, their wisdom, be it at home or work, maybe with an issue you're dealing with, and after accepting the offer, as the transaction is in the execution phase, you're thinking, wow, are you not helping me at all? As Ronald Reagan said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Is it just me or does it seem like most people these days are just not helping? Not that they're not doing things or trying things. There's a lot of action. It's just not helping. It just generally seems like the focus is on doing. But good, solid thinking is taking a long lunch break or something. On today's episode, we're going to have laser-like focus on only what we want to see. Then we'll ignore the obvious. And finally, we'll watch Christianity get a little fuzzy. So, get those blinders on, throw discernment out the window, and put a new head on that razor because I'm from the magical world of podcasts, and I'm here we go. As a reliability engineer, part of my job is supposed to be analyzing problems or equipment failures and determining either on my own or with a team what exactly is happening, and then develop methods, systems, modifications, sometimes even simple fixes to remedy the issue. One thing that all engineers are taught in school, whether we all remember it or not, is that whenever you approach a problem or a design opportunity, we must clearly define our boundaries. For instance, if I work with a company that makes a thousand widgets a day and we're experiencing a machine malfunction that decreases our output to 900 widgets per day, my job would be to eliminate the issue and get us back to 1000 widgets. If I fix the problem and my boss irately demands to know why the machine isn't producing 1,200 widgets per day, well, improving the output was outside of the boundaries. We can then set up a project, get all the customer requirements for that project, lock in those boundaries, and work to accomplish those needs. As much as boundaries can be used for good, they can also be used for evil. Uh, maybe not evil, but they can definitely be misused. You can prove anything you want to prove if you draw your boundaries around the data just right. If you want to prove the planet is warming, for instance, if you draw your boundaries around only a slice of the data that shows a warming trend, those that don't look any further than the line on the graph will buy into the hype and hysteria. If you want to show how you're saving America tons of money for every single gallon of gas that they pump, you could theoretically set your boundaries of time to say something like two weeks and then set your boundaries on the price of gas showing a range of only 3.65 cents so that a savings of two cents over two weeks looks like a massive cratering in gas prices, saving us all just tons of cash. Now, the good thing is, nobody would, would ever, ever do anything like that. But just imagine if they did, right? I mean, huh. I mean if, if someone was so diabolical as to do something like either of those two things, they could push an agenda. They could sway an election. 
destroy a country, you know, stuff like that. So be thankful that nobody would ever do anything as nefarious as that. Anyway, the article in question for this segment has not a single thing to do with what I just said. For some reason, I just wanted to get that off my chest. So let's go ahead and get into this totally unrelated article. Found on electrek.co, headline, Electric School Buses Give Back Over 80 Hours of Power to Massachusetts Energy Grid. Now, your first thought is clearly, wow, that's, that's awful nice of those buses, and you'd be right. Your next thought might be, how can I get my city to invest millions upon millions of dollars in these philanthropic buses? To which I'd say, hold up a tick, let's, uh, let's go through this review first before you call your mayor. So, it's no mystery that across the country and world, we've had some hot weather this summer. Uh, some would say that it's the man-caused global warming that's causing dogs that are out being walked to spontaneously burst into flames while the owner melts like the Wicked Witch of the East right there on the practically molten sidewalk. Well, sir, all this extra heat is causing a lot of strain on the power grids because people still think they have the right to utilize their air conditioners to cool it down to a frosty 78 degrees or so. So the idea was developed a few years ago that these buses that have large batteries and a lot of idle time could just plug in and shove electricity back into the grid. The concept is nothing new. People with solar panels and batteries in their homes have been able to feed back into the grid depending on how many panels you have and the power you're using at the time. But the ability for an electric vehicle to do this is only a few years old. Generally, a standard electric car or truck battery isn't really big enough to give power back. The long-range Tesla battery, for instance, is about 100 kilowatts. The long-range Ford F-150 Lightning battery is about 130 kilowatts. But these buses are running with a much larger battery. In the neighborhood of 220 kilowatts, of course, the size of the bus cuts the range down to about 150 miles, even with this extra-large battery. So the concept is that the school buses sit idle nearly the entire day. They're only taken out a few times a day, so rather than just letting them sit there with all of that precious battery power, why not plug them back in, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, that's for all you classic Doctor Who fans, and shove some of that sweet tingle juice back into the grid. Last year, 2021, a fleet of Highland buses crammed about 3 megawatt hours back into the grid, which would power an average house for about 4 months. But Highland sees much greater potential. The director of technology and platform management said, quote, electric school buses are ideal assets for V2G, that's vehicle to grid, applications. Nearly 500,000 school buses in North America spend most of their time parked. Fossil fuel-powered buses provide no value when idle. Electric buses, on the other hand, can be used effectively as mobile batteries when not transporting students to provide additional power that supports grid stability and resiliency. Now, apparently, the author of the article throws out the 10 megawatt hour figure to make a hypothetical point. For every 10 megawatt hours put back into the grid, you could power 600 homes. Now, remember, 3 megawatt hours is what they put in all of last year, so 10 megawatt hours would mean triple the bus fleet size, and that's not 600 houses for the year, that's 600 houses for a day. So if they triple their fleet size, plug them all back into the grid, and 
do that all year long, they could power 600 homes for an entire day. That seems kind of ridiculous. I mean, is it just me? But if you look out across the interwebs, you'll find many articles on this amazing achievement by Highland contributing in 2021 to keeping the grid healthy and stable. So, first of all, if our grid is that close to the edge, if the master circuit breaker is just quivering about to pop and plugging in a bus battery is the thing that saves us from certain doom, I would almost say that we need more power generation capacity. You know, like like real generation capacity, not the renewable garbage that's uh, definitely not ready for prime time. That, to me, is living a little too close to the edge. That said, I've simply got to ask this. Does anyone see the clearly agenda-driven boundary that's been drawn around the entire scenario? The largest, glaringly obvious boundary violation is that they're starting with a fully charged bus battery. See, anyone that's used anything with a rechargeable battery knows that, uh, wait for it, they need to be charged. Think of it this way. One of the greatest inventions of the last few years or so is the portable power bank. Oh, I love my power bank. Something about the size of a cell phone that holds enough charge to recharge your phone multiple times before it has to be charged back up itself. Furthermore, if you lend your power bank to a friend and they drain it way down, then when you need to use it, it doesn't have enough charge left to finish the job you need it for. So with that in mind, let's go back to the miracle savior of humanity buses, but let's draw out the boundaries a bit wider than this author did. At some point, the battery had to be filled up. I don't see anything that says it has a solar or windmill charger built in, so I'm assuming it plugs into a charging station. So we plug the bus in, charge it up, then we run the bus in the morning, get the kiddies to school, then in early afternoon we plug it back in to shove so much power back into the grid, but we need it to get the little crumb crunchers back home from school, so we have to make sure we have enough charge left over to safely accomplish the job. <laughs> it's designed for. And then overnight, we plug it back in and charge it up again. Now, I realize that there are peak power consumption times and off-peak times, but how much are we really doing here? Next, this article mentions that Duke Energy is working with Ford F-150 Lightning owners to turn those into vehicle-to-grid vehicles, pumping all that extra juice back into the grid, you know, when they don't need it. And from one of my past reviews, I mean, how many people need the entire range of that wannabe truck, right? But as the article says, by plugging in, not only do you help the grid, but you're saving money on utility costs. And who doesn't want to do that, right? But hold on. I've got a question. Here's what we've been told. Charging your EV at the house will save you massive amounts of money on gas, but will cost you practically nothing. In fact, businesses should have charging stops everywhere for you to just hook into. And if you go to a friend's house or to visit family, they should just let you plug in because they wouldn't even notice it on their power bill. But now we're being told that if you plug in and put power back to the grid, you'll be saving on utilities. But unless you're using a battery made of lithium, copper, graphite, and the blackest of black magic, your battery only has, at maximum, the same amount of energy you put into it. <laughs> Very theoretically. So which one is it? Does charging your battery cost you virtually nothing? 
Or does putting at max the same electricity back into the grid save you a ton of money on utilities? You can't have both. And once you discharge your battery into the grid, again, are, are we using black magic or the magic of unicorn farts to charge it back up? Or do we need to pull that power back out of the grid at a cost? Why didn't their boundaries encompass this? Finally, if you've ever charged something, you'll generally find that the plug gets warm or the cord gets warm, right? We've all felt that. And if you have a fast charger, you'll find that the plug or cord will get warmer than a non-fast charger. And furthermore, you'll find that when your device is dead or very low, the plug and cord will be warmer to the touch than when the battery is closer to full. And this is because most devices are generally smart enough to monitor how full the battery is and adjust the speed of charge so it doesn't fry anything. In other words, as you get closer to full, it slows the current draw, kind of like when you apply the brakes to stop your car. There's a coasting down or a ramping down of the charging speed. Well, have you thought about what that heat is? Put simply, that's the inefficiency of the system. See, the charger has resistance, the cord has resistance, and no matter what we try to do, there is some lost electricity that you're paying for, but you don't get to use when you charge up an electric anything. I've looked up on various sites what kind of efficiency should be expected in charging electric vehicles. It's dependent on the speed of the charger, the amount of the charge needed, the type of cables, etc., etc. But I feel comfortable with saying we could figure an efficiency loss of about 15%. Now what that means is that if you charge 100 kilowatts into your battery to get it full, you'll actually need to pump about 115 kilowatts through your electric meter to get you there. The 15 kilowatts you don't get to use is lost to heat. Now, if you put that electricity back into the grid, that same level of inefficiency should be expected. So if you're putting 100 kilowatts back into the grid, you're actually only going to be putting about 85 kilowatts in. The rest is lost due to heat. So if you charge 100 and give back 100, you've actually paid for 115 and been refunded for about 85. So if we look at a 220 kilowatt battery bus, they could probably easily pump in 100 kilowatts to the grid and have enough left over to run the kids to school and back. But they'd charge back up in the evening. So on a daily basis, they'd be paying for and throwing away 30 kilowatts of power. Now, this is all just a rough idea, but the concept, I believe, is correct. The losses would be dependent on a number of factors, but if, like Highland says, there's a potential 500,000 school buses, what if they were all electric? And what if they all did this every day? That would theoretically be 15 million kilowatts or 15,000 megawatts that would be lost every single day to heat. Let's say I'm wrong by a factor of three because that makes the math easy, that would still be 5,000 megawatts lost to heat every single day. Now, to me, and this, this is probably just me, but to me, that seems, uh, I don't know, excessive? Closer to home, let's say Duke Energy succeeds in getting people to plug in and feed the machine. Wouldn't this be like adding a 30% premium or, uh, or tax on charging your truck? Am I thinking wrong on this? If you see a flaw in my logic, let me know. So with my boundaries drawn slightly wider as someone that is, shall we say, electric vehicle skeptical versus how this author drew his boundaries as a pro EVer, can you see how the story changes dramatically? So who's right? Well, well, I am. I mean, clearly, 
Okay, seriously though, I do think I'm more correct in how I'm presenting the information and in how I've drawn my boundaries because he set his boundaries way too small. There are simply too many factors missing, intentionally or not, that affect those he's writing the article for. His intent is to present an agenda, and that's all. And how many people do you know that would look into this? Most people would stop at the headline and have this positive image about these electric buses saving the power grid. Now finally, how in the world do I tie this back into the Christian faith, the Christian life? Well, I believe that we don't have to try to draw some deeper theological meaning to everything, but the main reason I started this podcast is to force myself to think biblically about the many... (laughs) Many things that annoy me. And yes, this too has something the Christian can glean from it. As humans, Christian or not, we tend to draw boundaries in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about the difference between a working relationship and a family relationship or something like that. There are boundaries in life that are good to have. I'm talking about how we find ways to put the tightest boundaries we can around our thoughts or our actions, you know, to justify our sin. Just like vehicle-to-grid charging, if we draw our boundaries carefully and small enough, then our sin can appear to us to be justifiable. I was tired. I was hangry. I was lonely. It's not like I act like this every day. And the list goes on. As Christians, if the boundary we draw doesn't include Jesus, it's too small. It needs to be opened up to encompass Jesus, his examples, his commands, his sacrifice. Once we redraw our boundary, the true picture becomes clearer, and our sin seems to be much harder to justify. So, commit this to memory. The next time you're facing that temptation, the next time you're feeling the anger rise, take a breath, count to ten, then redraw your boundaries to include Jesus, and then decide your next move. This segment, or review, or whatever you want to call it, isn't one that I'll be snarking my regular snark in. It's sad, and especially for people of my generation, it's really sad. But this is illustrative as to why we, as Christians, must be so careful as to who we allow into our world as celebrities, heroes, role models, etc. Back in 1989, my mom, an avid listener of the local Christian radio station WWIB, heard a new song with a fresh sound and purchased the cassette tape. Now, in 1989, my mom was old, too old to be listening to this kind of music. Of course, in 1989, my mom was younger than I am today, and I'm definitely a fan of music I'm probably deemed too old for by the whippersnappers of today. But that's neither here nor there. I'm so grateful that she and my dad, to some extent, weren't old fuddy-duddies with music. I've tried to do the same with my kids, show her that Christians can enjoy genres of music, that Christians should redeem music, that music is a form of worship that we should not just cede to the world. So if I remember right, the song that she had heard was entitled Heaven Bound, and it was late 80s, kind of cheesy sounding, at least now it sounds that way, gritty street rap. The group was new on the scene, and they called themselves DC Talk, the DC standing for Decent Christian. They were made up of three guys, all attending Liberty University. Toby McKeon and Michael Tate met each other first, actually recorded Heavenbound together, and shortly after that, they hooked up with Kevin Max, and they became DC Talk. Over the next 10 to 11 years, they put out, I think, at least five studio albums, along with a variety of other media and other materials. 
Around 2000, they all split up to go their own ways. Toby McKeon, of course, is Toby Mac, with tremendous success in his own right. Incidentally, my daughter and I went to one of his concerts a number of years back, and hands down, best concert I've ever been to. Just saying. Toby Mac was the rapper of the group, if you didn't know that. Michael Tate was the black guy in the group. He had a very soulful R&B type of sound. Great voice. He's been the lead singer for Newsboys since 2009, after putting out a few solo albums. Now, I haven't followed him as closely, although I do have his two solo CDs, love both of them. As much as I liked Tate, I figured that Newsboys would probably fade fairly quickly, as the sound that Tate provided was nothing remotely close to the Australian-born original lead singer, Peter Furler. I was wrong. (laughs) They're still going strong, and Tate has really become Newsboys. And then we get to Kevin Max, or as he was known in DC Talk, K-Max. In my opinion, out of the three, he was kind of the odd one. He wasn't rap, he wasn't rock, he was contemporary, I guess, but he had a very rapid vibrato, which it just didn't seem to fit in. In my opinion, and take it for what it's worth, he really didn't fit into the group until the album Jesus Freak, where the music style went from mostly rap to a combination of rap, grunge, and rock, generally termed alternative, and this is where his voice started to merge into the group. Now, after the split, K-Max went on to his own solo career, but he never gained the traction that the others did. My generation of Christians and a lot of non-Christians have been affected for life by DC Talk, not just their own stuff, but the doors that they open for other artists. Personally, I still love nearly every song of DC Talk, and I pull them up and listen to them from time to time. So a couple days ago, I found on Protestia.com headline, Toby Mac open to reuniting with former bandmate turned atheist Kevin Max for new DC Talk album. Okay, so I'll give some background, but after they split, Kevin Max apparently went through a process of turning apostate, renouncing his faith. The hammer dropped in May of 2021. For 12 years, Max worked a solo career, putting out four albums, the first of which hit number 12 in the Billboard list of Christian albums, but the next three not making the charts. He joined Audio Adrenaline for two years from 2012 to 14, putting out one album, and then he went back to a solo career in 2015, putting out another seven albums, none of which were anything to write home about. But in May of 2021, he posted the following on Twitter, shocking many of mostly my generation. He said, quote, Hello, my name is Kevin Max, and I'm an exvangelical. He then followed up with, quote, I've been deconstructing, reconstructing, progressing, whatever you wish to call it, for decades. I've been in the Outsider Misfit Seeker Club for a long time now. Thank you for welcoming me in, but I've always been here. Happy Saturday, all. Thank you for your comments. Now, the term exvangelical simply means that he's finally ascended above. He's woken up. His eyes have been opened to the lie he's been told about being an evangelical Christian, and he's finally freed himself of the bonds. Now, two days later, he posted on Twitter, quote, anti-war, pro-peace, anti-hate, pro-love, pro-LBGTQIA, pro-BLM, pro-open-mindedness, anti-narrow-mindedness, pro-utopia, anti-white nationalist agenda, pro-equality, pro-vax, pro-music, anti-one-percenters, pro-poor, pro-misfit, pro-Jesus, etc. Now, I'm not going to comment on those. You can skip back the 30 seconds or so and listen again, but I will say this, that combination of things is not possible. 
Even if he's simply naive about groups like BLM and what they stand for, or that the narrative being pushed about the one percenters, of which (laughs) I'm not, just full disclosure, or the false narrative being pushed by the left about the alleged white nationalists, you simply can't be pro-Jesus and pro-LGBTQIA, and I find it funny that in his haste to signal his virtue, he got the G and the B swapped around. You can't be pro-Jesus and yet make the claim that Christianity is narrow-minded, which is what he did, at least not in the way he's claiming it, which is the same way as the world accuses us of being. He later tweeted that he was, quote, pro-life with exceptions, which so am I, my exception being legitimate life-of-mother cases, but that's not what he means, which became evident when he posted an image on his Instagram account in May of 2022 that just repeated line after line after line, quote, men shouldn't be making laws about women's bodies. I guess this shouldn't have been a shocker, as we could definitely have seen that he was deconstructing, following or creating his own Jesus, his own gospel. In August of 2020, nine months before declaring himself an ex-evangelical, he posted an image that said the following, quote, Jesus was a radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, wasn't American and never spoke English, was anti-wealth, anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, Matthew 6, 5, but was never anti-gay, never mentioned abortion or birth control, never called the poor lazy, never justified torture, never fought for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never asked a leper for a copay, and was a long-haired, brown-skinned, homeless, community-organizing, anti-slut-shaming, Middle Eastern Jew. Okay. Whew, okay, do I need to point out all the unbelievable errors and false narratives he set up in this one? I mean, it's supposedly so profound. It's such an enlightened tweet. I like how this makes many, many claims about Jesus, but the only Bible reference is the one where Jesus says not to pray like the Pharisees to be seen by all. All the rest of the claims, (laughs) just trust me. So coming back more current again, in June of 2022, he announced on Twitter that, quote, My daughter is gay, and my wife and I are proud to volunteer for this year's Franklin Pride, Tennessee, to support her and so many wonderful people in our community. Hashtag Pride Month 2022. Hashtag Pride. Then he followed up with, quote, She's also an activist, hippie cool, empathetic, beautiful, loves nature and animals in a poetic way, and a prolific painter. Hashtag Proud Dad. Now, I would add that she's also hashtag currently bound for hell, just like her dad, and it sounds like so is her mom. Now, I say currently because until a person breathes his or her last, God may grant them eyes to see. See, Kevin Max was never saved. I'll caveat and say that, yes, there's a slim chance that he may be going through a massive, dark period of doubt and confusion. But from everything he said, it appears that he is not now, nor ever was, saved. Looking at his Twitter page today, on August 22nd, he retweeted a post by David Hayward, who terms himself the naked pastor, as in he stripped away all the oppressive Christianese. This guy is nothing but a heretical mystic crackpot. He's got 30,000 followers on Twitter and a few thousand on YouTube. But the tweet said the following, quote, Fear is such a powerful weapon in the hands of religion. I grew up on it. It's taken me years to shake it. It no longer has power of me. If you struggle with fear, realize it's instilled in you to control you. Then be free from it. 
He then included a little cartoon showing a Google Translate window translating from Christianese to English. The Christianese side said, quote, have you asked yourself where you are going if you died tonight? And then it translates to the plain English side as, quote, I know exactly where you're going and it isn't heaven. So we know, and let me stress, as Christians, we know as a fact in the words of Jesus, quote, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. When this says no one, it includes ourselves. I am someone. As someone, I'm included with the no one that's able to snatch myself out of the Father's hands who are surrounding the Son's hands who are surrounding me as a born-again Christian. In 1 John 2, we read, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. See, Kevin Max was not in the hands of the Son or the Father. He was never one of us. He could be in the future. I don't know God's plans, and he and his family need our prayers. But as of now, he's not heaven-bound. The very first hit of his professional career, rather, he is hell-bound. And that brings us back to our article. The Protestia article actually references an interview of Toby Mac by Billboard. The interview is more of a focus on Toby Mac apparently creating quote, an unflinching album about his son's death. See, in October 2019, Toby Mac's 21-year-old son died of what was ruled to be an accidental drug overdose. His son Truett, or if you listen to any of Toby Mac's solo albums, you'll hear him referred to as True Dog, and you'll hear a very young True Dog rapping bit parts in a few of these songs. His son had struggled for some time with substance abuse. They say that his death was accidental. I'll take it for what it is, but he battled many demons for a number of years. He had his own musical career with very clearly non-Christian lyrics and themes. Now, I'm not saying that Toby Mac or his son aren't Christians. I have no idea. And yes, Christians can and do struggle with depression, with drugs, with alcohol, with all vices. So I hope and pray that Truett was a saved individual. In this interview, Toby Mac is discussing one of the songs on his new album where he asked Michael Tate and Kevin Max to be a part of, which they were. He's then asked about a reunion of DC Talk. Toby Mac, Tate, and K-Max get the group back together, maybe another album. Toby Mac responded, quote, I don't know. Sometimes I'll write a song that sounds more like DC Talk than it sounds like me, and I'll just kind of hold it. So there are a few of those sitting there. Our friend Ryan Tedder sent us a song that he felt like sounded like DC Talk, which we still have sitting there. And it's amazing, because he wrote it. I don't know the answer to that reunion question. I know that I'm not opposed to it. Obviously, I asked Michael and Kevin to be on this song, so it's not a closed door for me. So the question is, should it be? If a DC Talk album came out now, with K-Max being an avowed ex-evangelical, a pro-LGBT, pro-abortion, etc. individual... What kind of album would this be? Would Kevin Max just sing lyrics to get the check? Would he sing about the Jesus of his own imagination? Would the album be de-Christianed to make it more mainstream? Could you listen to it the same? I don't think I could ever listen to it. I can look at Toby Mac and Tate, and from what they've said, I believe they're Christians, and as such, I can listen to the past DC Talk albums, but I couldn't listen to anything new. 
and it makes me question if something is starting to crack with Toby Mac as well. Or is this just a nostalgia thing, something where he still loves his friend? Maybe he feels it's a way to try to get through to him, or maybe Toby Mac isn't concerned or even agrees with Kevin Max's views. And that's the kind of point I want to make. Do we know who we're listening to, music or preaching? Do we know who we're reading? Do we know who we are holding up as our role models? On Sunday nights, I lead a small Foundations of Theology type study. We use a video-based teaching method with discussion after. We're currently studying how we got the Bible. And in a recent lesson, the video mentioned the Archbishop Serapion from the 2nd century AD. He was the overseer for the churches in and around Antioch. The Christians in one of the villages were arguing about reading a book called the Gospel of Peter. Not to read it as biblical canon, but as additional or devotional type reading. So Serapion, without reading the book, said that rather than have dissension and strife within the church, just allow those that want to read it to read it. But rather than just let it lie there, Serapion decided to read the book and instantly regretted his decision to allow them to read it. In reading this book, although he found many good parts of it, he also found some suggestions that could be interpreted to imply that Jesus wasn't fully human. This is the heresy of docetism, and this is not biblically accurate. So Serapion sent a hastily written letter to the church and told them that he had learned some disturbing things in the book and to look for him as he was on his way there. I'm assuming he wanted to not only undo what he did, but also instruct his church as to why this book would not be a book that should be read. That story is from more than 1,800 years ago. The idea of giving the appearance of good but being dangerous is not a new thing. So looking back to our article, should Toby Mack and Tate, who from all accounts appear to be evangelical Christians, partner with Kevin Max, who is a self-described exvangelical, to produce an album, or even a song that's Christian in nature? And I'd have to say no. This is why a general gospel-centered Baptist church shouldn't partner with liberal Protestant denominations or even with the Catholic church in worship, and possibly not at all. This practice of different faiths working together is called ecumenicism. For instance, I will work shoulder to shoulder with the Catholic against the barbarous act of abortion, but I will not share in his worship. For a few years, my church partnered with a Presbyterian church, both small neighborhood churches, to put on VBS. But after being very observant in the second year, after trying to teach an adult class and meeting the oddest resistance to a deep study of the topics, after talking with a few of the adults, and after finding what I'm pretty sure were pride symbols in their sanctuary, I started doing some digging. I found out they were PCUSA, a very, very liberal denomination, more focused on social justice and liberal causes, with very little emphasis on scripture and the gospel. I spoke with my pastor, and we have not partnered with them again since. We can't mix the belief systems. And that brings me to an even larger point. Right now, in the Christian world, there are infinity Christian books written by infinity authors, experts, and pastors on infinity topics. There are droves of musical artists pumping out an endless array of music. There are sports stars and movie stars that come out of the Christian closet from time to time to claim they've found Jesus. Speaking in generalities for the evangelical world, we seem to have this innate need to fit in, to belong. To that end, we tend to welcome any and every celebrity or up-and-comer into the Christian inner circle with nothing but a simple profession that, hey, I'm one of you. 
Some percentage of these authors, pastors, artists, athletes, and actors are legitimately saved. But how many times have we seen a Christian artist go apostate, decide he or she is gay, affirm perversion, jump to the secular world? How many authors and pastors are writing and teaching absolute heresy? How many actors have claimed Christianity and then go right back and live how they always did? Sadly, the Christian world is easily... Sadly, the Christian world is so easily starstruck by Christian celebrity that we tend to grasp onto anyone and we get burned with gross regularity. In an interview, John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet, said this, quote, My conclusion for the church, all of us Christians, we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders or influencers or cool people or relevant people the most influential people in Christendom. And yes, that includes people like me. I've been saying for 20 years, and seemed probably quite judgmental to some of my peers, that we are in a dangerous place when the church is looking to 20-year-old worship singers as our source of truth. We now have a church culture that learns who God is from singing modern praise songs rather than from the teachings of the Word. Now, I'm not being rude to my worship leader friends, many who would agree with me, in saying that singers and musicians are good at communicating emotion and feeling. We create a moment and a vehicle for God to speak. However, singers are not always the best people to write solid Bible truth and doctrine. Sometimes we are too young, too ignorant of Scripture, too unaware, or too unconcerned about the purity of Scripture and the holiness of the God we are singing to. Have you ever considered the disrespect of singing songs to God that are untrue of His character? Now, he went on, and you can read more of his interview if you want. The link is in the notes. But in keeping with the theme of the segment, the woman doing the interview, Julie Royce, be careful with her. She's got her own issues and her own agenda. Now, in this case, John Cooper, what he said is right. In fact, I've seen other interviews with Christian rock or metal singers where they make comments to the effect of, if you knew how many Christian rock artists are not Christian at all, don't care anything about what they're singing about, you'd be shocked. But I'd love to ask John Cooper, why can't we have solid theological music with the current sound? It can be done. I remember the old cassette tapes used to have the liner notes with all the lyrics to the songs. The pioneering Christian rock group Petra had the scripture they wrote the song from after the title of nearly every song. It can be done. But these days we get groups like Hillsong, Bethel Music, Jesus Culture, or Elevation Worship that are cranking out 7-Eleven songs, seven words repeated 11 times with droning choruses, highly emotional lyrics all about love or fire or something like that. It's theological garbage that shouldn't be sung or listened to by anyone. But they're featured in nearly every contemporary church nearly every Sunday. Now, without going into it, the music changed around the year 2000 with the rise of the seeker-sensitive movement. The decision was made that instead of making church a safe space for Christians to fellowship, grow, learn, and recharge, you know, like the Bible says we're supposed to do, they wanted church to be a community social club. Just get butts in the seats. Be careful about saying or singing anything that's off-putting. Work to be like the world, not just in the world, and maybe something, 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 and poof, and now they're saved. Of course, it doesn't work like that, and hundreds of thousands of lost people every Sunday sit in the stadium seating, watching a concert, enduring a short TED Talk, and then they go home with the false idea that they're all good, <laughs> heaven bound, to quote the song. So for the Christian, hopefully for everyone that's listening, we must be very careful. 
we must test everything against the true truth found only in scriptures. I've had to delete and unsubscribe from podcasts, stop listening to various musical artists, get rid of, usually throw away books from authors because they've turned from the faith to follow their own lusts, to follow a religion of their own making. Some will say that if the early stuff was fine, keep it. Just don't get any of the current stuff they're putting out. And in some cases, I'll admit, I've done that. Some will say it's all fine. Just eat the meat and spit out the bones. And yes, I can say that I've done that a few times. But let me encourage you, know what you're doing. Know who you're listening to or reading. If you've never heard of the author, research that author. If you can't understand the lyrics, look them up. Know what's being put into your head. Even for those that you deem safe, you must be discerning. Listen, test, and understand. If you're listening to or reading someone that you know has problems in their theology, only do it if you're using the material for a purpose. For instance, I'd recommend that you don't read A Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren has some critical theological issues. If you're going to read it, though, read it with a purpose, not for a driven life. Read it because you're using it to find the errors or to learn what is being taught to others that you'll need to be able to defend against. Don't read it to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Remember, it only takes one missed bone to break a tooth or to choke. It's just not worth taking that chance. And regardless of if you're reading or listening to compromised material, or if you're reading or listening to someone you deem safe, remember, the only way you can truly discern if what you're listening to is good and correct, the only way to tell the difference between the meat and the bones, is to be buried deep in the scriptures. If you don't know the truth, how can you know the errors? So to wrap this up, first, send up a prayer for Kevin Max, that he and his family would truly find the God of the Bible, the true Jesus of scriptures, the real saving gospel. Pray for Toby Mack, that he will keep the faith, that he will put the state of the eternity of his friend and the souls of millions of fans ahead of a trivial reunion album. Second, pray for yourself, pray for each other, that we will all know the truth and that we will be so knowledgeable in the Bible that discernment will be secondhand for us. Lastly, be careful. The Bible warns us that there are wolves out there. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. These wolves are not the obvious, unsaved, hostile to Christianity type people. These are people that fit in, that say what sounds like the right things, that do what looks like the right Christian things to do, that write what sounds correct, but they are unsaved or theologically sloppy or driven by personal pride and lust and fame. Their fruit may look good on the outside, but it's poison. And unless we know how to recognize that fruit, we could put ourselves in danger. So be careful, be discerning, be in the Word, and always be in prayer. Well, buckle up, my friends. This is going to be an interesting ride. Normally, I do a bit of quipping prior to revealing the headline. You know, I set up the review with an anecdote or a clever something or other, and then once I get you moving one direction, I slap you with the headline. Well, I got nothing. There's just literally nothing I can say or do here that will outdo the headline I'm about to give you. Ready? No, no, I don't think you are. Maybe sit down first. Put down the sharp objects, place the baby in the crib, pull to the side of the road. Okay. You've been warned. So found on OnlySky.media, headline, Evangelical Christian Furries are worried they'll be targeted for their faith. Okay, so I think you can see my dilemma here. I feel I may need to give a little background before moving into the article, which, um, well, well, we'll get into it shortly. So some of you may be asking, 
what is a Christian furry? Well, for those that are listening right now, you should have a pretty good idea that I'm a Christian. For those that know me personally, you know I'm somewhat furry. I know, I know. Too, too much information. I, I get it, okay? But, but although I'm a furry Christian, that is not the same as a Christian furry. <laughs> it's not even close. So before I try to define a Christian furry, I want to back up to the question of, what is a furry? Well, the problem is that there isn't a 100% ironclad definition. It kind of depends on who you ask. There are those in the furry community that say that if you're a fan of furry culture, you, my friend, you're a furry. There are others that are more hardcore and say that you must act, speak, think, look like a furry, as well as write the stories, create the art, or perform other creative outlets in order to be a true furry. So those that are the more serious about the furry culture kind of fall into two groups. The first are those that could be just the average guy or gal in real life, living their furry life after hours, conventions, meetups, etc. The other group is made up of those that literally live the furry life as 24-7 as they possibly can. In short, a furry is a person who acts like, or literally believes themselves to be, an animal of some sort. Could be a real animal, like a cat or a dog. Could be an anime animal creation or a creation of their own. The individual in the furry culture lives that life to varying degrees. This generally includes dressing as their furry personality, which is often done with very expensive and very realistic costumes. And those that believe themselves to be their furry persona will even have modifications made to their face and body to look more like the creature they believe themselves to be. Now, as one would likely suspect, living this fantasy life is very often associated with various levels of perversion and degeneracy. The furry culture is tied very closely with the LGBT community and very often includes a plethora of gender-confused individuals. At the very least, the furry community is not a Christian-based community, the vast majority being atheistic or agnostic, or maybe various other Eastern mysticism types of religions. Definitely not Christianity. Hopefully that explains exactly what furries are, or at least good enough for our immediate purposes. And as for the website, OnlySky.media, they describe themselves as, quote, exploring how a natural perspective changes everything from our place in the universe to the meaning of a single life. They go on to say, quote, our audience is the rapidly growing population of the religiously unaffiliated in the United States, currently 29% of U.S. adults. In a few years, our audience is expected to surpass every religious denomination in size. Only Sky brings the process of discovering secular life into the open and into a community of others doing the same. We've gathered authors, educators, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, poets, artists, musicians, comedians, climate scientists, folklorists, physicians, and some of the top secular activists to guide our exploration of a post-religious world. Now, with their description of who they are, the defining of furry culture, and the headline, I think you can start to see where this is going. So let's go back to the article now. So this article is mocking of the self-avowed Christian furry. Apparently a piece was done by Religion News Service interviewing leaders of the Christian Furry Fellowship, and in this article, those being interviewed reveal that there are two things they try to hide from, 
pretty much everyone. Or more accurately, they hide one thing from one group and one thing from the other group. For their non-furry friends and family and their professional lives, they're worried about being ostracized, so they hide their fursonas. From the world of the furries, they fear being doxxed or cancelled because of their profession of Christian and conservative beliefs, so they hide their faith from the furrydom. One individual, who asked to be called F, who had the persona of a red fox, said, quote, My furry friendships are a blessing, and for that reason I am sad to see so much grief within the fandom that could be helped by the knowledge of the Lord. So the author from Only Sky doesn't hide his lack of sympathy for the Christian furry fellowship, as he has a problem with an infiltration of Christians with the desire to spread their faith in a community that, quote, already has to avoid the wrath of Christians in every other aspect of their lives. He goes on to say, quote, the type of people who often adopt fursonas and identify as LGBTQ have to deal with legal, personal, and moral attacks from Christians who wield incredible power. Yet these conservative Christian furries, who have the kind of privilege the rest of us can only dream of, want to come into this community in order to evangelize, and they have the audacity to whine about how hard things are for them. Please, the furries won't dox them for being Christian. They respect privacy. But you can bet good money that conservative Christians will keep spreading lies about furries. They already have. These Christians ought to be asking why they're so unwelcome in this subculture. And that's it. That's the article. So, <laughs> I mean, where, where do I start with this? So I guess I'll start by addressing the author of this article. I'm not entirely sure what planet he's living on, because in the world I know, conservative Christians are the most denigrated, persecuted demographic out there. In the U.S., if you throw in white, cis male, and middle-aged, well, we're the lowest of the low, the scummiest of the scum. We have the lowest number of points of intersectionality, thus, we practically don't exist. We're nothing but useless eaters. As for the furry community respecting privacy, yeah, I'd, I'd have to guess they probably do. I think they all know that this is not quite yet a fully accepted lifestyle. Give it a, another handful of months, we're already starting to hear stories around the country and around the world about teachers having to capitulate to a student's insistence that they're a kitty or whatever. That said, within the community, if he seriously thinks that if a furry individual admitted their faith, they'd be accepted... He's nuts. Now, what I do agree with is his take on how the furry community is treated by Christians. Now, hold on, hold on. Don't turn me off yet. Give me a minute. I'll have plenty to say about the furry culture and especially a so-called Christian furry fellowship. But as Christians, and I'm speaking to myself here also, we tend to look at those that are suffering from mental delusion, mental illness, severe confusion that manifests itself in let's say, very unusual ways, as outcasts. I'd say that the minority of Christians will look at a furry convention and think, those are lost souls wandering aimlessly, trying to find anything to hold on to, and what they need is Jesus. And speaking as a generic Christian, changing my thoughts from freak of nature to in need of Christ is not easy. Now, what I personally don't have a problem with, and I'll admit this, this could change in the future, but it's being very clear about what I think about 
movements. Like, for instance, the tranny movement we're dealing with right now, trying to destroy our children. I've got no love lost for those trying to do that. They've made their choice. And although I know that my anger for those indoctrinating and grooming our kids is justified, I still need to look at even those individuals as hell-bound sinners needing the saving faith and new heart only God can provide. I also don't agree with the saying that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's not biblically correct. Beyond the common grace that he allows in everyone, no, all those that are unsaved are in enmity with God. They are in danger of suffering for all eternity under the wrath of God. God is not pacing back and forth in front of his throne, pining for the unsaved, the the unrepentant human. That's a softening of the gospel. That's a cheap grace model of evangelicalism that's been floating around for far too long now. And it's a very dangerous image to plant into the heads of the unsaved. Oh, Jesus loves me even though I do all this stuff? (laughs) Cool. That said, as Christians, as humans that were once slaves to sin as well, once enemies, once haters of God that have been regenerated to a saving faith, we should be loving to those still trapped in their unregenerate lifestyle. This doesn't mean affirming of their life choices, as love doesn't mean affirmation or coddling. True love means true truth. It can be both loving and hard at the same time. We, all of us, well, Most of us, as there are some of those that have already gotten this down, but most of us must do better. We will not pique the curiosity of those living in sin if all we're doing is sinfully degrading them. So what is the deal with furries? Well, as I stated, that community falls into different groups. The most degenerate are those living perverted lifestyles of homosexuality and, for lack of a better term, legal bestiality. The Bible is very clear about this. Exodus 22.19 says that if you lie with an animal, you die. Leviticus 18.23 and 20.15-16 says if a man or a woman lies with an animal, the animal and the individual is to be put to death. Deuteronomy 27.21 says that the person that lies with an animal is cursed. And then you get into a variety of Paul's writings, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and then many other places in the New Testament that talks about sexual perversion, sometimes mentioning specific aspects, sometimes not, but in most cases, a form of the Greek word pornea is used. In the New Testament, you can find it in 25 different verses. This word is a large catch-all word that means about any kind of perversion you can think of, and probably a bunch you can't, including homosexuality and bestiality. And this is what Paul opened the book of Romans with, that man wanted their lust, they wanted their perversion, so God gave them up to it to pursue their desires, counter to his created order, and in doing so, they will suffer the penalty for their sin. So, for one portion of the furry community, they simply want their sexual perversion. I'm not positive he considers himself a furry, but Sam Brinton, a young man that President Biden appointed as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition in the Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Energy... Oh, I need a nap after that. Anyway, this kid is a cross-dressing drag queen that is, quote, dog-attracted. And by dog-attracted, he means other men dressed as some sort of bondage S&M thing that looks like and acts like a dog. This is the kind of sexual perversion that some in the furry community are possessed by.
Now, other furries are those that are more like those that enjoy cosplay, which is similar to those that enjoy dressing up for Renaissance festivals, or those that enjoy LARPing, which is basically participating in a live role-playing type game with others. Although odd, I guess I can understand that people like to dress up and be someone or something else for a while. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And then there are those that are between those two groups. They're not as deep into the dark, perverted world as the first group, at least not yet. But they're definitely not just a cosplayer. They're more invested physically, mentally, and emotionally into their character, almost a split personality type of thing. And then we have to add the fourth category that I'm as shocked as you are exists, the Christian furry. I honestly don't know what to do with this. Just logically, I would have to say they either exist in the world of the cosplayer or the split personality group. I wouldn't think they delve into the depths of perversion. Otherwise, I'd have to question their definition of Christian. So let me be honest with you here. I come to the Christian furry, and I have a scattershot of thoughts about this, and I don't know if I can give any absolutes. I think the best I can do is tell you what I think and why I think it, and then leave it to you to decide. I have to say that this is surprisingly a more difficult topic to address than I first thought it would be. This is one reason I do these podcasts. It's not just to get you to think, to look at the world differently. It's to get me to do that as well. So if my kid came to me and said, I'm goth now, my answer would be, no, you're not. Let's figure out what's going on that makes you feel that way. And if that requires us talking or meeting with the pastor or the help of a good Christian or biblical counselor, so be it. But if my kid came to me and said, I'm a furry, I think I'd have the same reaction as if she said, I'm into cosplay, or I'm into anime, or I'm into LARPing. My first question would be, what exactly does that mean? I think as a Christian, I'd want to be unbelievably careful about this, knowing the degeneracy this community eventually leads to. Anyone, Christians included, that get involved in this community are in danger, to various degrees, of being sucked into the dark perversion of this fantasy world. So if my kid were to be at the most basic level, just enjoying the fantasy-type world of fantastical animals, into the art, into the stories, those could be okay, as long as the type of media she's consuming is appropriate. I think that's the only level of involvement I tolerate, as anything more calls into question a number of things. If she's looking for friendship, for instance, for community, for acceptance, for love, those are things that her family and her church should be providing. If we're not, if it's not, that needs to be repaired and addressed. This is where I believe that the Christian Furry Fellowship I mentioned earlier this is where I think they are. I, I just think they're maybe deeper than the surface interest. Now, I read some of their info, and for the most part, I don't find a problem with their statement of beliefs. A few things I'd have to question further, but overall, their beliefs seem to be fairly solid. What troubles me is that they're hiding it from their family, and they're hiding their faith from the furry community. Another word for hiding is lying. And I think we can all agree, it's not so good, especially if you're purporting to be a Christian community. What would the difference be about hiding this from your parents and hiding your homosexuality from your parents? The reasoning is the same, although being part of the furry community may not be a sinful act, but either way, if you're lying about what you're doing, should you be doing it? Now, it may take some explaining, but if you have nothing to hide, you should be able to be honest, right? If you can't be honest, that's a problem. 
If these are children, still dependent on parents, even if the parent or parents aren't Christians, as long as the child is not being asked to go against God's laws, they are to honor their parents. If the parent says no, as a Christian child, the response should be okay. It may not seem fair, but the Bible is clear. Kids are to honor their parents. Now, if this is an adult that we're talking about that's afraid to tell family or afraid that coworkers or an employer may find out, I'd have to think that would warrant a little more introspection as to what you're doing and why. Again, if you're lying to cover it up, that's a sin. As an adult, you're not mandated to tell everyone your business. But if you're afraid someone might find out, then is what you're doing honoring to God? Would it dishonor God in any way? if others found out. Equally disturbing, maybe even more troubling, with this Christian fellowship is the fear of others finding out they're Christians. Not fear of witnessing to others, fear that others will find out at all. I think this gets dangerously close to violation of the words of Jesus found in Luke 9.26, or whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, I'm a massive introvert. I get being scared to witness to others. I've listened to a number of messages on fear of man and how it's wrong and how you must overcome it, how you should be able to go up to a stranger and throw down your witness. I vehemently disagree. I just don't think that everyone has that specific gift. And I think witnessing to others, telling others about what you believe can be done in many ways based on your gifting. Over the years, I've become more bold, but going up to a stranger, knocking on doors, that's not where any of my gifts lie. I have no problem discussing my faith in great detail with those I know, saved or unsaved, or if the topic were to come up, or if I'm asked, but to just be a a Ray Comfort, street evangelism, talk to anyone kind of guy, that's not my gift. So from my perspective, I can understand people that are afraid to do that. If I was someone who was an extrovert, willing to talk to anyone, anywhere, at any time, but I chose to keep my Christian faith off of the list of possible topics, just refused to talk about that, now I think we're getting close to being ashamed of God again. So where do I stand with a Christian being part of the furry community? I guess I've talked myself into the stance of, it would probably be best to stay away from it. If you take the involvement to the absurd end, it ends with sexual perversion. If it's being used as a community that the family and the church should provide, well, that's not good. If it's causing you to lie to friends, family, or employers, that's a sin. If you're afraid of being outed as a Christian in the community, how is that not being ashamed of Jesus? So I think I'd try to work with my kid to figure out what the draw is, work to nudge her in a better direction, and stay very informed and involved to make sure that while she was interested in this, that absolute boundaries of my making, based on biblical principles and my gut feeling, aren't being crossed. The Bible tells us to be in the world, but not like the world. The Bible tells us to not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed through salvation and sanctification to be more like Jesus. The Bible warns us of staying away from sexual perversion. As unfair as it may seem, the reality is that as Christians, we're faced with the choice of world or God 
on a daily basis. We're told in James 4.4 that friendship with the world means enmity against God. And we're told by Jesus in John 15 that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. For most of us, the answer to the question, should a Christian be a furry, is a simple one. Never! But what is the furry in your life? In everything we do, in activities we participate in, in clubs we join, we must ask ourselves, does this honor God? Can I be a part of this and honor God? And then we must be willing to answer that question honestly and act accordingly, which will at times mean that we will need to deny our human desires to bring honor to God. And there is no better thing that we could do. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.